They must be destroyed on sight. Welcome to the Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your humble host, Lee Russell, and I am joined by the blind master to my grasshopper, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing quite well. I'm, I'm somewhat less humble. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you drinking anything tonight, or are you uh, I'm, just... I'm just having some water. I um, have to get up, not early, but early enough that I am uh, just decided not to drink right now. So, uh, Although right. it may change my mind later, so we'll, I reserve the right to open a beer later. So, just All right, so the rest of this podcast will be dedicated to getting Daniel drunk. <laughs> That'll be great. We have two, uh, I think, really good movies to talk about here. But uh, before we do that, I think we're going to get into uh, basically what we've been watching. And I'll let you go first, Daniel. I actually watched something that was uh, new on to Netflix. This, or I think it's new on Netflix uh, recently, um, which I'd seen before. It was the uh, documentary Jesus Camp uh, from okay, 2006. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you seen this? Yes, I have seen that, yeah. I saw it originally uh, when it, I mean, I think I saw it on like some illicit copy on Google Video or something back in like 2007 or so. And then I uh, never really thought about it until just it was on and I went, oh, something to watch, you know, kind of late at night because that's the sort of thing I do is just put on uh, 10-year-old documentaries about uh, religious fundamentalism um, <laughs> at one o'clock in the morning. That's just That's just what I do. While I agree with the film ideologically, I find it interesting because there's there's such a kind of a, I grew up in the American South, and so so much of this is not. Um, there's not a big Pentecostal. Uh, there are Pentecostals in the film. You know, yeah. um, this is this is a film about a religious uh, kind of retreat for children, yeah. uh, like a like a vacation Bible school kind of thing. That's so this massive mega church in North Dakota. Essentially, lots of footage of people looking like they are and uh, being indoctrinated into a cult. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I, I didn't grow up in that subculture, but I grew up kind of adjacent to that subculture in a lot of ways. I, you know, nothing, not, not very much in that film surprises me, but I do think that there is some editing that makes it look worse than it is. Mm-hmm. And there is, uh, the, the, it's definitely kind of one of those things of it's, I think it punches down and makes fun of the children and kind mm-hmm. of doesn't take them seriously instead of kind of focusing its attention on the, uh, the people running the show. I think that yeah. it's it's it, there's a, there's a freak show element to it that I think is is actually counterproductive for for what the film is trying to do. And uh, I don't know that was kind of the, my my thought upon rewatching it was just like wow this is didactic is one thing and opinionated is one thing, but um, actually being kind of a bad movie. And I remember just kind of being bored by it the first time I saw it, but I mean this time I was definitely kind of on that like this is actually kind of working against the cause to some degree. I think that was kind of a trend with documentaries in that period too. Like this is coming like maybe slightly after or sort of the same era where like Michael Moore's documentaries were really. Yeah. This would have been two years after Fahrenheit nine 11, you know, it was before what was it? Sicko and uh, yeah. Capitalism, a love story. I mean, it's definitely that kind of Michael Moore, but without the cleverness that Michael Moore brings, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, love him or hate him. Um, And I think his later films are, are, kind of fall victim to some of this as well. I mean, I think the earlier Michael Moore ones, like Bowling for Columbine, it's just a fun movie. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. even if you hate what he's saying, I think it's fun to watch. We're not talking about Michael Moore today, um, but, I, but I think uh, Jesus Camp is just, 
it's kind of didactic. It's preaching to a choir and it's preaching to a particular kind of like upper middle class white liberalism. Um, yeah. it, it really is talking to the to the to the cultural elites, to the coastal, you know, who who are laughing at the rubes. I think it has the same problems as uh, Bill Maher's uh, re- religiosity. Um, religious. Yeah, religious. That's right. Definitely has that sort of same tack to it. Like it's, it's it's going for the same sort of thing. When I'm watching a documentary like that, I definitely even even though, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm an atheist. My mind is pretty much. We, made we, are, we are both atheists. Yeah. We are both uh, committed rationalist skeptics. Um, we both think it's it's uh, all a bunch of uh, metaphysical hoo ha. Yeah. So um, but, we can but, we can just put our put our put our uh, beliefs out there for anyone listening. But I, I but at the same time I don't need I don't need the religious to be mocked. I just need the religious to talk. I need them to hang themselves with their own words. Let 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 their arguments live and die on what they actually say. Mm-hmm. Don't don't go overboard and actually try to attack these people and try to make them look like fools. Because I mean, quite honestly, you don't really need to. <laughs> well, well, there there is this sort of thing of like you start to look like a bully, you know. Yeah, if exactly. you're if you're if you're taking people who are basically reasonable, and I mean especially like making fun of kids, which I mean the yeah, film is stupid. I mean it's not hard to imagine, you know, the same film essentially being made with a bunch of kids, you know, and uh, studying the Quran. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 you know it's it's definitely framed in this way of like. Look at these uh, kids in religious ecstasy being brainwashed by this cult. There's a lot of really, really interesting stuff out there about, you know, kind of the, the way that fundamentalism intertwines with politics, especially in the United States, and the uh, kind of cultural and religious factors and the political factors that have like, played yeah. that group. There's a lot of really interesting stuff out there, and Jesus Camp doesn't do any of it. So no. um, I would actually, um, you know, having watched it again, I would definitely say, you know, I can I can recommend like ten other documentaries that are way better at like discussing this um, than this one. So uh, don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the, uh, the the little uh, like fifteen minutes of Borat that's like set in that same uh, uh, kind of setting <laughs> honestly does a better job. Yeah, than, uh, Jesus. yeah, I, I I definitely agree. I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because I I definitely see a lot of people just like sort of they champion Jesus Camp all the time. Like, oh, here's a really great example about how all these people are wrong and they're monsters. It's like you're going about it the exact wrong way. Like, it's, it's just like, not a good film. I mean, no. it, it is it is propaganda in the worst way, and we don't need to do propaganda. We need to do stuff that's actually yeah, thoughtful um, and analytical that, that, and respects them as people. I mean, yeah. you know, here's the thing. Like, I really hate propaganda. I always feel like anything that's sort of trying to champion any sort of political or social cause that I agree with needs to be honest and forthright and has to be not propaganda. So I, I, I don't want, I don't want my fucking documentaries to be like John Wayne and the green barrettes for, for, right. right? Like I, I don't need to see that shit. Like this no. is so terrible. Agreed. Actually, if you want, I'll try to put together a list of a few documentaries that I think are better that people mm-hmm. would, would should should watch instead because I've seen a bunch of these. So uh, cool. I'll, I'll try to put together a little list for you, all right? Cool. We'll bring it up next week. Awesome. Cool. All right. We'll go to a couple of films I watched. Um, the first one I want to mention is called Dark Valley from 2014. It's a Western, but it's actually set in Germany. And it's about a sort of an immigrant coming back to Germany. His mother was German and taught him German. He comes back to this uh, sort of 
valley uh, town that's like way up in the mountains. It's almost kind of mythical in a way because no one can really reach it for the most part, and no one really bothers trying to reach it. And it's it's very it's a, sort of a standard western kind of story in a way because it's it's a revenge picture. He's he's there like. Anyone who's ever watched a fucking Western in their lives knows that that guy's there to fucking shoot some people. Like, <laughs> he, sh- he shows up and, I mean, you know he's going to kill some people. But Is uh, it set modern day or is it a historical piece? No, it's, 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 it's historical. It's, it's set in the Old West uh, period. It's just that it's in Germany. Uh, a lot of people were actually sort of living like that in that period, even in Europe. So it wasn't so vastly different. It's, of course, in this movie... You don't have the vast open plains. Instead, you have these very hilly foothills, uh, rocky fucking environment, not much fields or anything like that. It's a very narrow valley. And the guy's in there, and he's basically taking revenge on this family. I'm not going to give away why he's doing that, because it's actually a pretty interesting reveal in the film. I would probably put this akin to like the proposition from a few mm-hmm. years back. Uh, really great, great Western. Uh, this is very much like that Western. Also, in a lot of ways, a lot like Unforgiven. Um, I think this is probably the first great Western I've seen in a lot of years, probably since The Proposition. Uh, what's the title again? I missed it. Dark Valley. I'm writing it down. Uh, next one I saw was The Expendables Part 3. <laughs> and Probably slightly less rapturous praise for that one, I would imagine. It's kind of enjoyable. Like, all the Expendables movies, I'll say they're semi-enjoyable. I mean, especially just just to see who shows up in these fucking films. But this one is essentially centered around... uh, They bring Wesley Snipes in, and Mm -hmm. they they spend the first half of the movie basically centering, making jokes about the fact that he was in jail for taxes for a while. Yeah, and uh, it's got uh, it's got Ronda Rousey in it, which is pretty cool. But it's got Mel Gibson in it as the big villain, and he he did that in uh, Machete too. It's not great, but it's all right. It's also kind of a fuck you to Bruce Willis. Like they brought Harrison Ford in basically to replace Bruce Willis in that one because they had like negotiation problems over his fee or whatever. So there's like, hey, fuck you, we'll bring Harrison Ford in or whatever, and he he can he can stand there and say three or four lines for like. A million dollars or whatever, you know. Works for me. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. I have uh, I've avoided the franchise just on the um, I just don't care kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, sure. You're, you let me put it this way: you're right to not care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I ever just saw it on, I'd probably sit and watch it like that. That's I don't even care enough about it to not watch it. If that makes any sense, you know. Yeah, like it's I, not I, even. It's not even something I'm actively avoiding. It's just something that, like, yeah, well, whatever. You know, that, that's how I feel about that. The whole franchise is nothing anyone has to see. If you like all these action stars and you want to see them still kind of kicking ass, then, you know, it, it's kind of fun because, I mean, Sylvester Stallone is, like, in his 60s and he's still pumping steroids into his veins and he's still looking pretty fucking buff or whatever, you know. So, I mean, and then Arnold Schwarzenegger's in this one. Uh, there's all kinds of other minor action stars in this one. Jason Statham, my personal favorite, is in this one, who I think has never really gotten his due as, like, the new big action star. He just sort of fell by the wayside somehow. Yeah, I mean, after, especially after the first Transporter, I mean, Mm -hmm. that was kind of a, I mean, because you remember, like, the Transporter came out the year after uh, Snatch, 
Mm-hmm. And so, like, I saw him in Smash, and I'm like, oh, he's this kind of, uh, you know, like, indie British actor, clever, fun guy. But then you see him in the Transporter, and like, oh, my God, this guy's an amazing action star. He was just one of those guys who just picked too many bad projects, just too many kind of, like, overexposure, I think, was, was a problem. And he just kind of never found that, like, one role that was, like, his. I yeah, mean, just maybe, maybe uh, Crank, the Crank series, you know. Yeah, and even the Crank ones were not that high profile, and he just sort of fell by the wayside, which is sad because he's actually a really good actor. I've actually, I've actually watched a lot of his like direct video shit, and he's good in everything he does. Like he's really good in everything he does. He's just a guy who's never given that big movie. That's all, yeah. that's all there is to it. Like the closest he's gotten to that big movie really is these expendable movies, and he's a part of an ensemble, so you know you can't really stand out in that shit. Yeah, yeah he, he he definitely needs that that one role. Maybe he'll be one of those guys like in his fifties who like finds that like you know Liam Neeson and take yeah. or something. You know, yeah. <laughs> it would it wouldn't be hard to imagine that. Let's put it that way. No, it wouldn't be. And the the last one I'll mention is called Late Phases, also from twenty fourteen. Uh, this is a uh, werewolf movie. It's one of the best werewolf movies ever seen, but I'll put that with a bit of a caveat. Uh, the werewolves themselves are the, some of the worst-looking werewolves I've ever seen in a werewolf movie. Let's see. Envision Bubba Hotep mm-hmm. without the mummy. Instead, you got a werewolf and less humor. It's done really well. It basically centers around this uh, war veteran who is he was blinded in the war, He's this old curmudgeonly asshole, basically. He doesn't get along with anybody. His his son puts him in this retirement community, and it happens that this retirement community is stalked by a werewolf. And because he's blind, he has to, you know, use his other senses to work out the problems, work out the mystery, uh, eventually confront this werewolf. There's some good red herrings on who or what might actually be the werewolf in the film. It's actually really well done. I'm I'm pretty impressed with it. Uh, I just have to say, like the werewolves themselves are very unfortunate. Like they just they don't look good. They they don't look good at all. But the movie is really solid. It's really entertaining. That's one I'd actually really recommend people check out. It's also on Netflix as well. So, so uh, that's all we've been watching lately. And now we're going to go into Movie God, bring back Movie God after a little while here. And actually, I'm going to get you to start, Daniel. Uh, what what did you uh, want to pick for me for Movie God? Sure, I actually uh, came up with a new one while we were talking. So, uh, okay, you know, cool. enjoy. Two actors here. Uh, although I think I've given you one of these actors before, but, you know, whatever. It's a, it's a new comparison. I right? can kill them again. You can kill them again. I don't remember what you chose, but actually, no, we're going to go with the movie. All right. Die Hard. Okay. Or Lethal Weapon. Die Hard or Lethal Weapon. Oh, shit. Uh... Now, in my opinion, the originals of both of these films are bona fide classics. And they are each followed with terrible, terrible sequels. Yeah. Well, honestly, I would say Die Hard, once you get past part three, I'd agree they're absolutely terrible. Lethal Weapon, I'd say, were terrible right off the fucking bat. I'd have to fucking kill Lethal Weapon, man. Die Hard is just too integral to the DNA of modern action film. Uh, Die Hard, I think, does it so much better. It's so much more tighter. It's such so much more a better-paced film, better acting, more of a straightforward action film. The, the thing about Lethal Weapon is too much humor in it. Like, it's just... It's that more jerkwad fucking Michael Bay kind of action humor shit sure. going on. 
that I just I can't stand for the life of me. And like, there's some elements of that in like the Expendables movies that mm-hmm. really kind of makes them just sort of mediocre for me. But Die Hard, like that that film, it, it had jokes, it had humor, right? But it was dead serious when all the chips were laid down. Die Hard, you're you're right that Die Hard is this. Uh, it's a machine. It just plucks right along, and it and it does what it does pretty much perfectly. Um, it gave us Alan Rickman. Bruce Willis becomes an action star without. Yep. I mean, Bruce Willis probably would have gone on to do a bunch of silly comedies instead of yeah. uh, become an action star without it. And if you kill Lethal Weapon, we'd probably lose Mel Gibson as a as a major commercial force. So those are two good things, uh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I don't know what the fuck Mel Gibson would do if he didn't have. I mean, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon is eighty seven, so that's two years after Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Mm-mm. This was kind of the period where he did basically Lethal Weapon movies, and then he decided to be a serious actor for a while. Mel Gibson. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a, a joke that I got from John Oliver's show, um, okay. <laughs> uh, where uh, he was talking about torture. Uh, mm-hmm. he, did, he did a segment about torture, and he uh, said, you know, torture should be something that, we, that happens to Mel Gibson in his movies. And then he shows <laughs> a bunch of clips from, like, Lethal Weapon, where Mel Gibson gets tortured, and then <laughs> Payback, where Mel Gibson gets tortured, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And then he says, uh, you know, watching those clips is uh, is a lot different now than it was ten years ago. <laughs> there's, a certain, there's a certain pleasure you get out of seeing Mel Gibson in pain now. Oh, um, fuck, he, he should be tortured for Payback, because that was awful. What, oh, what, I like what, payback. I like payback. I hate payback. That's such a shit on Point Blank. Like it's. Well, it, it is. I did see it before I saw Point Blank. I, to, uh, to be fair, um, you know, and it is very much not that movie. Um, yeah, I so, just. I, I I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I mean, it's I it's better if you haven't seen Point Blank. Yeah, if if you haven't seen Point Blank, you might enjoy Payback. Uh, but other than that, the only thing that's recommended from fucking Payback is Lucy Liu as a dominatrix, and that's about it. <laughs> She's great in that, yeah. Yeah, uh, I could, I could, I could go with that any goddamn day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to uh, write that down. I'll save that audio and uh, play it for you later. Hey, that's great. I, I love her. I love her in leather and cross-eyed and freckled and yeah, whatever. Also, uh, the Charlie's Angels series, the the two Charlie's Angels movies. She's she's so she's so good in those. Even though the movies aren't that aren't that great. Yeah, she's she's great on mute in those films. I, I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're way off field now. Yeah. All right. So I'll give you uh, my movie god, and this is an, I think this is probably going to be an interesting one for you because this is a one that sort of spans a whole maybe almost forty years of genre films at this point. Which one do you eliminate, Daniel? You are movie god. Uh, are you going to eliminate Richard Donner's Superman or Tim Burton's Batman? <laughs> well, um, on a personal level, that's an easy one for me. I kill, I kill Batman because I grew up with the... I mean, I grew up with both, obviously, but um, the Richard Donner Superman meant a lot more to me. Personally, in terms of like cinema history... You know, who knows what Tim Burton might have done had he not made Batman? You know, mm-hmm. who, who knows if he'd gone on without that massive... I mean, in Batman 89 is as big in 89 as, like, The Dark Knight was in 2007. You know, mm-hmm. that was... People forget just how big that movie was. Um, if anything, culturally, it might have been even bigger because it was kind of the first time we'd seen that sort of thing. Man, I mean, without it, Tim Burton might have gone on to do 
you know, the, the issue then becomes then he wouldn't have had the commercial clout to make like Edward Scissorhands and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the other, you know, Ed Wood and then later on Sleepy Hollow and then he went into the, now I'm going to do everything in CGI and make really expensive shitty movies for the rest of my career. <laughs> so, you know, um, Tim Burton's definitely tarnished himself at this point, but his 90s material probably would not have been made without the commercial yeah. success of Batman. Man. My, my, my question is, how do you think it would have affected the superhero movie? Well, without, I mean, Donner Superman is the original, I mean, in terms of like a modern Superman movie. Um, mm-hmm. And they were trying to get that made for years, trying to find actors who would who would do it, you know, who, who could play Superman. Oh, man, without it, I don't know what, you, you might not have, I mean, superheroes probably would have eventually have happened, mm-hmm. but not anytime soon. You know, that was something that was, we probably would have ended up with more Star Wars knockoffs, to be quite yeah. honest. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, although now that I'm thinking about it, you know, Donner Superman really only, like, he really only got bad 80s superhero movies. Like, the the modern wave would definitely doesn't rely on Donner as much as it relies on stuff from the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, really, you know, once CGI got good enough that you could do these things and make them look better, <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm looking, thinking about all the awful superhero movies that were made in the 80s. Yeah, it's it's um, weird. It's weird because like a lot of the like Superman, Superman two, you you could say they're bona fide classics. Like they're mm-hmm. really just great movies. You look at all the other Superman sequels; they're they're garbage. They're they are garbage. Especially four. Four is just atrocious. Yeah. Like yeah. I liked it when I was like nine or whatever that movie <laughs> came out. When I was seven or eight, I saw that movie theatrically, and I loved it. But I was like seven years old, so you know yeah. you can't you can't hold me responsible for that. And then and then you have. Um, even even then, it wasn't like a big cultural thing. Like there there was like Captain America movies and stuff like that, and a Fantastic Four one that was kind of aborted from Corman Pictures. Um, that you know they were all basically low budget productions. Well, the Captain America movie was literally made just so they could keep the rights. I mean, it was made mm-hmm. over like a, a two like a, a two week period or something just to say, look, we made a Captain America movie. We get to to keep the rights for it for yeah. another you know ten years or whatever. And then you got Batman. And that kind of it didn't do as much as people might want to think it did. Like it, it kind of spearheaded some superhero properties, but a lot of the stuff was still based on comics, kind of garbage. Like I, I, I honestly don't think it was until uh, Blade where you Blade's saw Blade's the like, big turnaround. Blade, yeah, Blade, and then I mean, honestly, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. You might you might laugh. I think even though it isn't a comic book. Our superhero, I think the Matrix was really like like once you kind of saw the because Neo is essentially a superhero, superhero in that movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of what he can do, um, even having flying at the end. <laughs> yeah. um, and I and I I mean, I honestly think that what happened was technology finally caught up. You could do some of this stuff and make it look quote unquote realistic um, yeah. in a way that you never could make like Spider Man look real without CGI. I mean, even yeah. the the more even the Amazing Spider Man. Uh, those two movies, which are much more uh, practical stunts and that sort of thing than, like, you know, CG, are still using CG to, like, remove um, camera rigs and remove safety harnesses and that sort of thing. I mean, I just I just think that the nature of the medium is that you can just never do it without the, without mm-hmm. modern special effects. Like, we just had to wait for technology to catch up on that. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I love the kind of... I love... I think, honestly, the, the superhero franchises now are definitely getting overburdened with their own mythology. 
And uh, yeah. you know, it's gotten it's gotten too big. I would love to see kind of more kind of quirky, interesting stuff. I haven't seen Ant Man yet, which was just released like this weekend, mm-hmm. but um, or, or last week maybe. Uh, but from everything I've read, it was basically like, yeah, Edgar Wright um, was was basically thrown off that movie for being too original and being too <laughs> interesting. Um, and so the in and you know, Marvel has a like a set like design, yeah. and that's how they make a billion dollars with every movie. Is they've got this like set design for this is what we do in these movies, and um, I don't know. I'd love to see. Oh man, we could do a whole podcast about superhero movies. Honestly, yeah, I, I mean, like you, you, know, you know what the set, the sad thing about that hearing that Marvel has this set in stone, basically Nazi agenda for the fucking films. Yeah, right. it, it makes Guardians of the Galaxy feel so unimpressive. All of a sudden, it, it makes like that. That movie seems like it's just so wild and like. Uh, fucking charts in in every fucking area, and then you're like here, like oh no, this is all coldly calculated. Group. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is. I yeah. mean, and well, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, if you're a filmmaker who can work within those restrictions, you can do some really good stuff. And I think, you know, I've liked by and large the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I just, you know, from what I'm hearing, just like looking at that schedule, it's just like this thing is going to collapse under its own weight. And I would love to see more like you've seen kind of like movies like super or kick-ass that are like trying to be the like okay we're gonna do the indie like really dark dramatic you know um version of these movies i like that too but i I think there is kind of a middle ground i I would love to see and i I think i've talked about this on the podcast before the kind of return of the 40 million dollar movie the return of the like we're going to like have some special effects. It's going to look good. It's going to be a crowd pleaser, but it can also be kind of quirky and, and interesting and, and original yeah. and not have to be this, you know, kind of dark guy beating people's heads in with a wrench version <laughs> of a superhero movie. Like, and also that would be a good way to get, you know, more representation and in different kinds of characters and different kinds of ideas. And um, I don't know. I still think probably the best of the super or the best of the comic book adaptations Sin City, you know, which isn't a superhero movie, you know. But um, yeah, that is like almost a panel for panel perfect adaptation of a of a graphic novel. I mean, you, know, you, you only have to look at like the special edition DVD that comes with the actual like comic book, yeah. <laughs> and you 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 flip that while you're watching the movie, like holy shit! How yeah, f- I actually own a bunch of those comics, and so I mean, you can sit down and just follow along with the. I mean, it's almost shot for shot. I mean, they almost use the comic as a storyboard. I mean, and, and Robert Rodriguez says, I mean, we basically use the comic as a storyboard. Yeah. You know, uh, again, if you ask, if I have to kill one, it's not really a hard decision for me. I kill uh, Batman uh, for okay. both for I for me personally, it means less than Superman, and. Uh, also because I think that uh, Tim Burton's career might have been more interesting. I think he would have found a commercial property. I think he would have still gone on and, and done some... I mean, the 90s were the era that Tim Burton could thrive, mm-hmm. <laughs> ultimately. you know, He would have found some other way to, to, to make some money for a studio to get you know, into that. I mean, he, he, was, that, he was quite hot at that time. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would be interested to see what he would have made without that kind of big commercial clout. Um, whereas Richard Donner, I think, works in the studio system a lot better and just kind of, you know, would have been fine. He wouldn't have had Superman, but he still would have had, well, Lethal Weapon, you know? I mean, yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and let's be honest, Batman would have survived. Like, Batman would have showed up again at some point, and he would have been either as good or better than a Nolan version. So, I mean... As long as we're on superhero movies, and uh, I'm taking us a field again, but uh, did you know that there was... Uh, that, 
that Orson Welles optioned Batman in like 1940. Really? There, there is a persistent, you know, people try to debunk this and, and like it kind of comes up and then doesn't. I mean, Orson Welles in the kind of uh, editing process or 41 or something like that, in the in between the end of photography on Citizen Kane and when he was editing Citizen Kane, mm. he picked up and, and tried out a bunch of projects and was like fiddling around with what he wanted to do next. And um, there is this persistent thing that comes up over and over again that there was a plan to do a Batman movie. Wow. Yeah. Holy um, shit. <laughs> if, if, and, and imagine Orson Welles in post-Citizen Kane, pre-Magnificent Ambersons, Orson Welles, German expressionism, you know, welded to that time, high technology, making a Batman film. There, The speculation is it could have killed the Western right then and there. Like, you, you I, could have had a whole era of, Superman, or of superhero movies like, it could have been a real genre, because you know Orson Welles would have made it, like, Oscar caliber. Man, I'm just... I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck he would be, would have been able to do, and what would he have done with Batman? Like, because that's still the era where Batman was still fresh and pure. This was the Batman that was shooting people with guns and mm-hmm. breaking criminals' necks. Wow. that that I think that would have changed the fucking playing field for superhero movies. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Fuck, I can't even I can't even begin to think of how fucking much that would have changed things if he had made a Batman movie. Holy fuck. It, it would I have mean, been it would have been something like um it would have been more of a pulpy serial in a lot of ways, like it probably would have been more in the roots of like The Shadow and stuff like that, but Man, like a noir fucking Batman in the forties, fucking killing people and I taking mean, revenge. I mean, I feel like Joseph Cotton as the Riddler, and like you know, <laughs> oh like fuck, or Edward G. Robinson, a... Edward G. Robinson as as the uh, as the Penguin, you know, yeah. like like that. We're talking about that caliber of talent, you know. That um, imagine Orson Welles just had a giant hit in nineteen forty two or nineteen forty three. Imagine yeah. if. Coming out of Citizen Kane, which was seen as a financial disappointment, even though it, it won a bunch of Oscars and everything. Imagine if it then gone on and made a giant movie that just ca- captivated audiences. Imagine what his career would have been. Yeah, fuck, man. Yeah, can I kill Tim Burton's Batman and create Orson Welles' Batman? I am wish I, you would. Am I allowed <laughs> to do that? I wish it could happen. <laughs> <laughs> Holy fuck, man, yeah. I never heard about that. That's fucking mind-blowing. <laughs> Holy shit. I, I would have loved to see that fucking Batman. So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. I guess uh, I'm going to try to recover now from being so flabbergasted by that fucking notion Daniel planted in my mind. And we're going to go on basically to our first film. And uh, this is going to be Blue Ruin from 2013, directed and written by Jeremy Soliner. Most people probably don't recognize this name. I actually do recognize this name from a movie called Murder Party from 2007. Pretty interesting horror movie, very entertaining. When I watched this movie, I was like, holy fuck, this guy has just jumped leaps and bounds in his filmmaking ability. Let's put it that way. Uh, this is starring uh, Macon Blair as Dwight, Devin Rattray as Ben Gath- 
Gaffney, you might actually recognize his actor from Home Alone as Buzz McAllister, as basically uh, the older brother character in those films, the Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Amy Hargraves as Sam. Uh, I actually remember her. She was in the Ed- Edward Furlong vehicle brain scan from 1994 as the sort of love interest in that film. Uh, Kevin Kolak as Teddy Cleland. Eve Plum as Chris Keeland. Uh, David W. Thompson as William, Brent Wersner as Carl Cleland, Stacy Rock as Hope Cleland. Uh, this is a revenge movie, and this is basically centered around uh, Macon Blair as Dwight. He is uh, basically Zach Galifianakis uh, <laughs> without a lot of food. Um, yeah, he's he's uh, he's hobo Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, pretty much. You, you meet him right Finally off someone on screen that looks like me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, this is this guy who is, as you can tell right from the opening of the film, he's a transient. He's uh, basically living off of people's garbage. Uh, you know, he's unkept. He's dirty. When you when we first see him, he's basically breaking into people's houses to like get a bath. You, you don't really know anything about him. You just like he's living on the edge of society. Uh, he's he's brought in by a police officer to tell him that the person who was basically uh, put away for murdering his mom and dad has been released. This basically sets into motion the plot. This sets him into motion to find this guy and get revenge. And he does so uh, in very bloody fashion. And basically the rest of the movie is based around the consequences of his actions and the consequences that it is brought on not only his estranged family but the family of the of the guy he just killed and actually i'll just go to you daniel what your initial thoughts on this film were sure uh before i get to that i do want to say i just uh, googled it and the uh orson welles batman thing was a hoax was it oh shit yeah you could you could always edit this back in so that i just don't want anyone to uh to get confused uh the orson welles batman thing was a hoax uh from 2003 um and i guess i saw it and didn't realize you know never saw it like retracted um, I was also confusing it with uh, something that uh, Orson Welles did option during that period, which was an Isaac Asimov short story called Evidence. Um, oh. which, uh, so, so I was kind of confusing two geek properties. And, um, uh, but yes, no, it is not true that Orson Welles was playing a Batman film in the, in the 40s. Just to, just to put that out there. That's incredibly I, I, I created I created a, uh, an, a, a, a Lee's erection on that, and then uh, had to kill And you shut it right down. <laughs> Back to your original question there. Uh, Blue Ruin, a very small film in a lot of ways. It feels very like a uh, uh, largely wordless. I mean, the long yeah. stretches of this film, I mean, go, go without any dialogue at all. Within little brief periods of where there are kind of people talking. But I mean, the first, I mean, third of the film has very little, like, kind of on screen dialogue, a lot of kind of ambient sound or ambient dialogue, but uh, very little um, spoken words. It, um, the, the main character in the first third or, or so reminded me a little bit of this um, story. I don't, you've probably heard of this story. It was a, uh, there's this guy who, uh, this hermit that was discovered in uh, Maine. Uh, about a year ago, who had been um, essentially living on his own in the middle of the woods in Maine for 30 years. And he's described, I mean, the way uh, is this guy who, who never talks, who has literally not spoken, you know, a word to another human being in 15 years, very withdrawn. He liked to read. 
you know, it, it felt very uh, of a piece with that, that same kind of character. This, yeah. this, this guy is, he's solitary. He, he lives a life. Um, you don't really get why at first. I mean, you're just kind of presented with this, with this guy. And then gradually you, you get to know who he is and he becomes humanized. You're really following him around. Probably what impressed me most about this is the way that even without dialogue, you get the sense that this guy, you very, get a very real sense of his personality and you get a real sense of forward momentum at all times. You know, there's this old line I think Kurt Vonnegut wrote where he says, you know, every sentence in a, no- in a novel should either advance the plot or reveal character. Yeah. And I feel that way, like every shot in a movie should either advance the plot or reveal character. And, and this movie it does that in spades. It's an, it's an effective thriller. It's an effective revenge film. Um, it has a, a lot of really interesting character moments in it. It's not the greatest movie I've ever seen, uh, but it is really, really effective, and it's definitely worth 90 minutes of your time. Yeah, the way this guy goes about stuff, like when you first see him, his eyes are just, he almost seems soulless. Like he's just kind of hollow, like dead. He, f- he feels like he's a traumatized character, like something really bad happened to this guy. At first you think definitely must be the tragedy in his life, must have just basically divorced him from society and made him turn away from everything. I think later on in the plot you get the sense that maybe he even had sort of a background where he might have done a lot of drugs at some point. Mm-hmm. So that might have been a con contributing factor he just sort of uh on impulse almost or perhaps it was predetermination who knows he he takes revenge on the person that he believes is responsible for the murder of his parents and that sets the plot into motion that basically makes this clan of criminals essentially looking this for hillbilly him. crime family effectively yeah like, you know, yeah. yeah uh like he he, he very bloodily takes revenge on on this guy because he doesn't really know how he's going to do it he's a very clever like he turns out to be a very clever assassin in a lot of ways but some things he doesn't really think through so he first he tries to get a gun so he tries to steal a gun from some truck in some bar somewhere he finds that it's got a fucking gun lock on it so so he tries and then and then then he can't get the the lock off yeah so he just throws it in a a dumpster like it's it's very it's very realistic in the sense Mm -hmm. of like it if you we're stuck with the stuff in your pockets and you wanted to kill somebody, what do you do? And yeah. it feels like very, you know, A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, leads to E, you know, it, it, structurally it reminded me more than anything of a TV show, Breaking Bad. The first, the first season at least of Breaking Bad is very like, oh, we killed these two guys and now we have to get rid of the bodies. And so you mm-hmm. like literally like, and then how you, how do you drag the body up the stairs and how do you, you know, do all this kind of stuff. It reminded me a lot of that that kind of aesthetic of this. Uh, you're essentially following him around and all of the, the stuff that he runs into. I think my, my favorite moment in the film, if I can give a little bit away, it is from the first half. So uh, at one point he has an arrow. He, he shot with an arrow. Yeah. We've all seen the kind of badass action hero moment of uh, the guy, you know, gets hit in the shoulder with a bullet or yeah. gets hit with it and just pulls the thing out and tosses it aside then chases after the uh, the bad guy or whatever. Here, he gets shot with an arrow and then has to, first of all, slice the arrow with a, with a, uh, with a hacksaw yeah. so that he can get into the, the uh, drugstore and buy the stuff that he thinks he's going to need. He attempts to pull it out, can't bear to do it, and then just, like, stumbles into a hospital like with the hope that yeah. he can sneak his way out afterwards. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of quietly darkly funny moment for mm-hmm. me also realistic like i mean i i can't imagine trying to pull an arrow out of my own thigh oh um, imagine you know? imagine hacksawing an arrow to your thigh imagine yeah, yeah. imagine the pain of just having that arrow move as you're tr- yep. bringing the hacksaw to it that must have fucking hurt 
like oh, yeah, yeah. and and again it's like it's such a little thing and we've seen this you know so many action heroes essentially have uh you know self-healing you know ha- have the wolverine mm-hmm. healing factor without saying so you know this is very much about like kind of uh reviewing the consequences of these decisions that that goes in not just the uh the kind of the what's baseline happening in the film but the the structure and the uh, kind of how how the relationships between some of these characters are revealed later on yeah you know you definitely get a sense that it is kind of like a puzzle that all fits together like it it, there there's no um there's no loose thread really here um no the writing on this is just so fucking tight like it's just they they basically thought of everything when they were putting this together. I, I really enjoyed the fact that all the scenes of him killing guys, it felt very realistic. It felt very naturalistic. The first kill, very bloody, very brutal, very quick, uh, like most murders and killings are very quick and brutal. Mm-hmm. If you get up behind somebody and you stab them, you, you can, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, that's another one of those kind of like badass hero things of like, yeah. oh, he's like a ninja and he's, he's this super fighter no it doesn't matter who, you know you come behind somebody and stab him in the back with a knife you can pretty much kill him nick and blair like his acting when he's doing this stuff you can tell he's he, he presents himself as very nervous like he's determined but he's incredibly nervous like this is something he's never done before but he is driven to to do this and he, he goes through with it and the rest of the movie is essentially him dealing with the consequences of his first murder he has to get his sister his estranged sister and her family out of fucking town to, just to protect them because he knows mm-hmm. he knows his criminal family is essentially not going to go to the police they're going to look for him and, and of course they do uh there's a very very tense scene in his sister's house where he's waiting for them to show up and they do show up and invade the home and that is of course the, the scene where he gets the arrow on the leg so it, it doesn't have any of these like badass scenes where he's like a badass guy like taking revenge on guys and fucking people up it's like very desperate very tension filled very real, realistic like this is kind of a meek guy like he's very you know he's not a he's not a muscled up Arnold Schwarzenegger type it, it, it's it's just like you or me it is yeah. it's very much like you decide you have to kill somebody or if i decided i have to you know i have i have i mean i've never fired a gun in my life um like i uh i wouldn't you know, what am I going to do if I if I had to kill a guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I would use chemistry because I'm a chemist. But you you'd know, be like evil uh, you know, chemist, you'd be I, evil I, chemical I, scientist. If if there was ever if I'm ever accused of a crime and I'm ever like in the in the news, I, it's going to be like local chemist. Like that'll because that'll just makes me <laughs> seem evil. Like it's just one of those things. Uh, it, it'll be like, mad you know, chemist. Mad yeah. chemist poison 30. Yes. No, that, that's exactly what'll happen. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like, like it does, it does uh, just everything follows from the last step. And especially this guy, again, kind of starting off as a vagrant, you know, mm-hmm. and he's, and he's got probably the one kind of nod to this uh, sort of uh, movie logic is that he's kind of portrayed as, as this kind of vagrant guy. He's kind of portrayed as being able to get in and out of places without being noticed, mm-hmm. which is very convenient for the plot in, in certain sequences. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but it really just serves to like kind of tighten the tighten the story and just kind of get you from point A to point B. They really don't use it like to allow him to do things that he wouldn't be able to do, like in terms of killing people or getting away from people or anything like that. Yeah, it's really just kind of only really use it like two or three times in the film yeah. at all. Like, yeah. But like you know, he he sneaks into the house and is able to shave. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a it's just kind of a nod to movie logic, just a little mm-hmm. bit. You know, it, it pushes that just a little bit harder than I wish it would have, but it's definitely. We don't need an extra thirty minutes into this movie, you know, showing yeah. like the realistic, you know, how do you break into a house, you know, if you're but but it really is like because he's a vagrant, he has so few resources anyway. When I say, you know, imagine trying to do this with what you have in your pocket right now, mm-hmm. I mean it, you know, like that's that's essentially what this guy owns, is just what's in his what's in his house, you know, what's in his what's in his pockets. Yeah, no, no. Under other than the uh, ending of this film, I think the best moments are actually spent when he reunites with his friend from from years ago, uh, who is sort of in a like I guess he's like a DJ for a heavy metal club or something like that. Yeah. You you get the you get more of a sense of the main character's backstory when you see this because you get an idea that this guy might have been heavy into drugs at some point. He might have mm-hmm. that might have been more contributing factors to why he's a vagrant than just the fact that he was traumatized by his parents' death. But he, he reunites with this guy. This guy was in the army for a while. Uh, he knows about weapons. So he goes to him to get weapons and to get some semblance of training and some help in dealing with uh, the family who are now coming after him. You know, I thought it was incredibly touching, like the subtle moments between these two characters, especially at the end after um, they have one of the family members in the trunk and they deal with him. I think the moments where he tells his friend to burn that picture that they have together, and the fact that he sabotages the guy's car so he can't follow him, help him out for his further adventures, uh, I, I thought that was really incredibly effective. Like, He's essentially divorcing himself from any future, Like, and he's he's protecting his friend, but at the same time he's saying it's goodbye, and my future is over, and don't come looking for me. It's all done. It's all gone. And he, he knows one way or another he's going to his death. I mean, yeah. this is not, uh, you know, the the only, you get the sense that the only reason he even left that bathroom where he killed the first guy was mm-hmm. to save his sister. At least for me, that that's sort of, the, I mean, that's the next place he goes, essentially, is to warn his sister. Like, I get the feeling that uh, at the beginning of the movie, he didn't quite even consider the consequences of what he first yeah. did. But after he did it, then he was like, oh, shit, there, there, there are going to be consequences. I need to deal with them. I need yeah. to get fuck out of here. When when he's running into that bathroom, he's like, it, it seems like it's end game for him. Like it's it's like I'm going to do this, and that's going to be it, and it's done. Um, well, I don't know that he even expected through that. I mean, yeah. you know, there there is this fatalism to it, where this is something I have to do. You know, it it just sort of feels like okay, that this is this is the end. You know, for me. Yeah. Um, I would uh, point out one other scene that I really liked, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to talk about the end because I think. This is a film that really people should should see. Exactly, yeah. And um, I knew nothing about it. I mean, you literally gave me the title, and I went, okay, I'm going to sit down and watch it. And I kind of knew vaguely it was a revenge film. This is kind of how I like to consume film these days, is just not know anything about it and just sit down and let it wash over me. Yeah. Which is why I often don't follow the, the film news anymore. <laughs> One scene that reveals character really well is just seeing him with his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there is this tendency in our in our real lives, you know, when we see... 
uh, homeless people, vagrants, and that sort of thing. We don't like connect them as people necessarily. I mean, it is yeah. sort of one of those, you know, we can be empathetic, but but don't necessarily like connect that with that's that's a human being with a family somewhere with a you know and and seeing his sister and you see like she's pretty well off. She's got a, mm-hmm. a nice house. She's got some kids. In fact, she offers him. $2,800 is left from the estate, which he hasn't kind of pick up, and a box of stuff, yeah. which I believe he actually throws in the trash yes, later in yeah. the film. Yeah, I was, I put that, I thought that was that, that the box he throws in the trash later, and literally takes the cardboard and and, and blocks up their window. Like that's all that's use. That's all that he cares about. That yeah, stuff the only other thing he takes is the uh, is the yearbook from his high school. Yeah, right, right. So he can um, track down his friend. Yeah, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, I uh, but I, I found the the scenes of uh, him and the sister talking um, really effective in terms of like giving us backstory on on the family. As, as you get more of the backstory, you gradually get just how kind of messed up this situation is in a lot of yeah, ways. And um, her her reaction was her acting is excellent. The, the reaction she gives to the when she realizes what he's done and what he's put her into. Mm-hmm. Yep. is very realistic. This is a woman who, she still loves her brother. I mean, she he's her brother, and she still loves him. She cares about him. But at the same time, she's fucking mad as fuck at him. Just the, the conversation they have, where he's standing outside, where the door is separating them. If mm-hmm. She's in the kitchen talking to him, and she, he's outside the door, just sort of slumped down his head down and sort of, like, talking to her. It speaks fucking volumes of the situation, and then eventually she actually opens the door and lets him in. Very, very, very good. Like it's just, it feels very much like a brother sister relationship to me. It really does work. Yeah, it really does show what you can do on a, on a little budget with a mm-hmm. couple of locations and uh, some good actors. Yeah, in a, in a, in a tight script. Um, yeah. You know, this is not a. Uh, Again, this is not the greatest movie I've ever seen. It's definitely one I would revisit. I think I would, I would, I would watch it again just to kind of see some of the nuances mm-hmm. uh, in the performances and in the in the shots and the editing and, and such that I might have missed the first time. Now that I kind of get the whole backstory, you know, not something that's going to change the world, but a really effective little little genre film and uh, definitely one that uh, I'm interested to see what the filmmaker does next. Definitely. Um... I just got to say this about this film. Um, I think it's a really good alternate take on the vigilante film. Um, I think it brings up a lot of good points about the repercussions of violence and how it spirals basically between two families here. Like this is uh, almost a Hatfield McCoy's kind of feud in, in a yeah, way. Yeah, I was going to say that, but I was trying not to give it away. But you know, yeah, no, you, <laughs> yeah. you kind of you kind of get this kind of family family feud kind of situation. You mm-hmm. definitely get this intergenerational thing to some degree like like yeah. these, these stories are these these two families are much more intertwined than you think at first and i think yeah. that the uh ending of the film is just heartbreaking in a way it, yeah. you know the, the way that everything resolves the, the thing about it is that the violence did not have to happen but our hero here dwight started it in the end he made the wrong move and he basically ruined two families in the process of doing that i recommend this film daniel i don't think daniel likes this as much as quite as i did i love this fucking film this is the best film i've seen this year um i highly recommend it to anyone who wants to see it go see it on netflix now i don't know how much longer it's gonna be on netflix because it's been on for quite a while now check it out if you if you like revenge films and you want to see something a bit better uh, honestly i'd say better than fucking death wish fucking watch it certainly less uh fascist than death wish <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> 
Well, I got I got a little bit of a straw dogs vibe towards the middle. I, I was I was kind of thinking it was going in that direction, but it went somewhere completely different. Yeah. So, uh, no, um, I, I I'm probably damning it with faint praise a little bit. I really really enjoyed the film. Um, we don't do I don't like star ratings and number mm-hmm. scales and that sort of thing. Yeah, no. I mean, if I was gonna rate this, I'd probably give it like three and a half stars out of four. Like it's it's a really effective film. It just falls short of greatness for me. Um, not even for any particular reason, except it doesn't it doesn't elevate the genre. It doesn't do. You know, it, oh, just, yeah. it kind of is just an effective genre film, um, yeah. but I really enjoyed the film. I, I you know, I'm not trying to uh, to to uh, belittle it in any way. Oh no, no, by, no, no. by uh, you know, uh, but no, I don't think it's the best film I've seen this year. But I, I really enjoyed it. So, the awesome. best film I've seen this year was Van Nuys Boulevard. <laughs> <Not at all. laughs> yeah, <laughs> the cooch won you over. That's no, awesome. Should have said Beach Girls. That would have been funnier. No, uh, all right. <laughs> Deverably. Yeah. Deverably. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Okay, next film we're going to go into is Nightcrawler from 2014, directed by Dan Gilroy and also written by Dan Gilroy. And Dan Gilroy, this is actually his first directing job. He was better known for screenplays. Probably his best known screenplays are Free Jack from 1992, <laughs> which is an interesting movie. I need. I have not seen that in years, but we I saw that it. and I went, "Oh, I need to rewatch that at some point." We oh. need. We need to do it. And Emilio Estevez, Anthony Hopkins, and fucking Mick Jagger. And we should do. Guy. We should do a uh, Emilio Estevez episode where we do that minute work and the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> Well, we we might need to need to negotiate the Emilio Estevez films a little bit, <laughs> but true. yeah, we could do a Emilio Estevez yeah. fucking episode definitely. Uh, also, you did Chasers in 1994, which mm-hmm. uh, the biggest draw to that film was uh, Erika Alienak uh, nude in that film. Oh, from is that, is that one? Oh, is that film? I get it. Yeah, yeah, where she uh, you know gets really naked, which was you know nice. Um, need, to, need to write that one down. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so uh, this stars Jake Gyllenhaal as Lou uh, Bloom, Louis Bloom, uh, Rene Russo as Nina Romana, Riz Ahmad as Rick Carey, Bill Paxton as Joe Loder, and Kuzak as Linda, and Kevin Raham as Frank Cruz. And this is eventually. This is essentially. Um, Involving a uh, character who is, when we first meet him, he's a thief. He is basically going around stealing copper wire. He's stealing uh, fences, manhole covers, and he's selling them people for the for the best money he can get. Essentially, he, but just by happenstance, runs into the business of filming crime scenes. He runs into a crime scene. He sees people filming it. He gets interested in taking this up for himself, uh, basically trying to get the first shots of a crime scene. And this leads him into an enterprising business to try to be the best, basically, uh, crime scene filmer that he can be to sell his fucking films to any uh, news agency that wants to pay top dollar. That That's essentially the plot of this. I'll get your initial thoughts on this one, Dan. This is a... Uh... A really effective genre film. I think it does have... I won't say that I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Blue Ruin, but I think that there's a little bit more going on in terms of um, you know kind of the ideas it's playing with. John mm-hmm. Hall's performance is phenomenal. Uh, I think that was kind of what you were saying when you first yeah. kind of recommended this one, is that Jalen Hall's performance is I just... Actually, I actually forgot to mention him in our Villains episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
he would he would definitely have been on that list. Uh, you know, you know, all the performances are great. This also kind of fits into my uh, uh, mid-range budget. I mean, this had a budget of eight million dollars, um, which I I imagine a, a lot of that went to you know Jake Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. um, unless he just kind of did it for cheap. I mean, but it it looks like a it, you know it does not look cheap at all. Um, it, but it, it looks like a Michael Mann film. Yeah, no, it, it does. I mean, it shows kind of what you can do with digital video these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that a lot of the budget is just, you know, they're filming on public streets and they've got to close stuff off and you got a lot of cars and you, yeah. the big, sorry not to give anything away, this kind of car chase sequence towards the end, which um, I'm sure costs a lot of money. This is what you can do with a with a kind of limited budget, but with, you know, a really good script and some, some creativity. I, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I think it it pretty much fires on all cylinders. It is definitely a, a character drama. It definitely it follows the like Blue Ruin. I, mean, I think that the 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 thread between these two is that they both follow this very damaged character through a fairly straightforward. I mean, this is not as you know A to B to C as as Blue Ruin, but it definitely kind of follows a this kind of logic path. And uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal towards the beginning of the film is definitely looking for a a purpose to a degree. I mean, you kind of sense that he's stealing copper and and doing these things more just out of like lacking a, a, a mm-hmm. motivation lacking desire or lacking a, a a place to put his energy you know he stumbles upon this and then gets obsessed with it and it it starts to you know take over his life because he's he's trying to fill this emptiness in himself yeah which i think is definitely interesting you know it, it is not it does not necessarily go the way you think it's going to go it, it is uh it zigs when you think it's gonna zag and it, and it makes some some really bold choices i think mm-hmm. um as a, as a script and as a as a um and then Hall makes some really interesting choices as an actor as well um and renee russo i think renee russo is uh yeah. it would be easy um, to overlook her first time i watched the film i didn't realize it was her like i i was watching the credits and stuff and it's kind of uh just sort of blurred over it and i watched it and i didn't recognize her but i was kind of like who the hell is that and then i saw the fi- the end credits where the credits were renee oh yeah that's renee russo holy fuck that's renee russo right there Re- yeah renee russo is 61 years old yeah and you wouldn't know it <laughs> no, she, she, i mean but she looks her age. i mean she does look you know like she yeah. does not look like she's 30 anymore you know like mm-hmm. it, it is definitely uh she's also married to dan gilroy which uh <laughs> You know, it definitely, uh, you know, I get it. I, I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about themes and we're going to talk about Jake Gyllenhaal, but I think mm-hmm. it would be a mistake to overlook her role. Oh, because no, no. I think yeah, uh, yeah. I think she is phenomenal in this film. Mm-hmm. I think she is sort of the, the driving motivator in this film. Yeah. Just as damaged in her own way as Jake mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal's character. And yet just, like, sympathetic to, mm-hmm. to a large degree. And she makes some, she makes some really kind of, interesting decisions in her and the way that she responds to things. And uh, I think that, you know, ultimately you kind of get the sense that she and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal found kindred spirits in one another. And that's, that's a lot of the way that stuff goes. I mean, so, so little is said, but so much is implied between yeah, these two characters. Yeah. Yeah. Gyllenhaal's character. Um, he is a straight up psychopath. When I was first watching, I was thinking, okay, maybe sociopath, but he is, he is a straight up psychopath because uh, he has the sort of upper level planning skills and like he's, he's got the same disregard for other people people's safety that a sociopath or a psychopath has but he is much more uh structured he is he he plans ahead a lot more than Mm -hmm. a sociopath would have 
Uh, so he he is one of the more effective and believable psychopaths I've seen in movies in quite some time. Just the look of him, he must have lost a little bit of weight for this role, I think. My, my wife was watching it with me in, in basic, or she watched the first, I think, half of it, and then she had to go to bed, sort of thing. But um, And she was just like, I just can't, I have a hard time watching these kinds of uh, films. Not because of the film she was fascinated by the movie but she's like jake gyllenhaal just looks unhealthy in this yeah she he, has a hard time with like he clearly lost quite a bit of weight i i, I would not be surprised if he lost like 20 pounds for this role he yeah is, um, like he's he it's not like he's not christian bale in the machinist or anything like that no I mean, no he, no but... he, he lost some weight i mean this is he he looks pale and uh physically weak and and kind of feeble and uh yeah, he he looks like a ghoul, man. Like he's he's just walking around. If as you watch his performance, he is looking at everything. Like that's that's part of his character where he is observing everything. He's taking everything in. Every time you watch him, his eyes are moving. He's looking at stuff. Very very effective. Very creepy. And at first, you think he's kind of a rube. Like at first, you're you're kind of like you know he's certainly portrayed as being this guy who's just ignorant and, and kind of stupid and doesn't understand and is just going to get rolled over in this world like he's just going to get crushed you know he does this research and he is like he is this guy i mean he speaks i mean if you if you look at the dialogue it's uh he he speaks in these management book cliches mm-hmm. he speaks in this uh like a ceo of a company he he is he's a he's a charmer like he's he's smart enough to be a charmer even though he's not charming you know in, in a way like yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's able to manipulate the people around him to do what he wants even though they know they're being conned into something like he, he's able to by just manipulating what they want and i, and I mean you know he's a, he's a very skilled student of human nature in that way he's he's, he's like patrick bateman in american psycho except for he's not stabbing people i mean that, that, <laughs> well, that that's sure kind of the big difference i mean he is a psychopath but he's not the sort that takes his own agency to go out and murder people he manipulates people instead of murdering them i mean well i feel like you know um patrick bateman in american psycho um is a narcissist mm-hmm. to a degree that this guy isn't like this guy yeah, he, well, he, yeah, does have, he does have that that streak but it's he's not trying to fit into a social order he's not trying to fit into a world i mean everything is a means to an end mm-hmm. and the end is is just completely his what what he it, it's in his own head like i don't even i don't even know that at the end of the film i know what he is seeking necessarily yeah um but i know he's seeking something that's his own personal goal that he is just single-mindedly devoted to it. Uh, not to that's not a weakness in the film at all. I think that it's that the ambiguity with what he's really after is is kind of the point of the film. Like you're you're constantly questioning what 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 is what is with this guy? What is he? What does he really want? And uh, you're left with this unending onion peel sort of thing. You know, it just mm. kind of falls apart. The more you the more you analyze it, the more I don't know. I don't know exactly what he's after. I also think it's interesting that he's not he he's perfectly willing to be friendly and mm-hmm. to um to be helpful and to uh not be evil to people like it like it is sort of like it, as long as you're working with him and you're not getting in his way he 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 will be your friend and like legitimately I mean with his uh with the guy he hires you know yeah. he is he is absolutely working with him I mean he's a not a bad boss. I mean, he's a demanding boss, but he's certainly, yeah. uh, I mean, he's certainly a guy who is uh, well-versed in these kind of management techniques and well-versed in this management book that he's 
or these management books and and I think you said he took a class or something like that where you know he he knows how to actively how to how to manage people in a in a positive way mm-hmm. um sometimes this anger gets the better of him but uh, <laughs> like he yeah, says he's gonna, he's gonna fire the guy because he he was pumping gas into his car he's like you got some gas in my paint that's gonna eat my paint if you do that again I'm gonna fire you right but at least he's very clear about it you know yeah. it, it, you know um clear expectations it, you know there it is it is like this guy who learned to be human by by reading you know management books and i don't know if you've read any of these books at all but they are designed for people who have no interest in actually interacting with people as people you know and, uh, and i mean that's what this guy is in a lot of ways he's just empty here's here's your impression i got like he is basically an android who got a new upgrade in his computer program to interact with humans and yeah. this, and he's trying this new one out I mean that that's what it feels like like he's very very cold very still very unemotional in a lot of ways he's he does show emotion here and there but uh he he does have the true sort of uh telling points of a psychopath I I find it interesting that how manipulative this guy is at some at some points he tells people uh you know when he's meeting people when he first meet uh Rick who he hires on or whatever call me Lewis don't call me Lou, right. but he will he will allow himself to be called Lou by other authorities just to make himself look helpless and weak when really he's trying to basically gear himself to dominate eventually. Like he he, right. he suckers people into believing that he's something that he's not. Th- th- this guy is a master manipulator. Like, that scene where he manipulates Rene Russo's character, Nina, into sleeping with him, yeah. which is incredibly fucking creepy. Oh, no, I mean, because he's playing on... And this is what I mean by by she's damaged as well as... Mm-hmm. He uses every tool at his disposal. He is kind of playing chess with people where he is... Mm-hmm finding that one weak point he is finding his way in he is marshalling all of his forces on this one thing he has a goal i want to sleep with you and then he builds to that thing and at first i mean she agrees to go on the date with him because well you've made a lot of money for me and you're kind of this pathetic guy and if i go on a date with you then you'll i can i can brush you off and you'll leave me alone mm. and then but you realize he he knew that's why she was doing it and he has three other tricks up his sleeve yep. in order to manipulate her into getting what he wants, which is, you know, her pussy. I mean, it, it's, it's astonishing. And then you get from the performance where at every step of the game, Rene Russo knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. He knows that she knows exactly what he's doing. And yet they're both, he gets what he wants regardless. I mean, yeah, it is he, such a, he, he preys on desperate people. He, he preys on their desperations. Uh, the Rick character that he hires that character, he has nothing going on. Like he's desperate for a job, so mm-hmm. he can he can pressure him into working for him. Rene Russo's character, uh, they make a point of stating that she is uh, basically she started as a reporter. Uh, she's not been in any news organization for more than two years, mm-hmm. and that, and at this point, this is her last chance to solidify her career and make some money and retire, you know, like yep. if, if she doesn't make this happen, she's fucked. So 
she basically has to succumb to his blackmail. Yeah. No. And uh, and and she's getting something out of it as well. Like she yeah. gets a a charge from having his footage and being able to push the envelope with with her coworkers and and being mm-hmm. able to be an authority. And you know she is manipulating him and he's manipulating her. This is a film built on performances above above all. The sequences between Renee Russo and Jake Gyllenhaal have this haunting quality, and there is such a subtlety going on in the way that those performances work they are both just master class i i love how well it plays out i lo- i like the fact that both these characters know exactly what they're looking for and they're both they're basically going to give away something to get something else renee russo's character i i think they make a point in the film to uh basically acknowledge that the media and the overall sort of news media is almost as hollow and amoral as jake Gyllenhaal's character is so sure. it's 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 a perfect kind of fit like it's a, almost like a jigsaw puzzle kind of perfect fit that well, both of should these... we should we talk about the larger themes in the film a bit or yeah, um... yeah, yeah. I, I think i think a little bit it'd be good because i i think this is one of the main criticisms i've seen of this film where some people have said that they pick on the media a little too much and i honestly i disagree i think this film doesn't take enough shots at the media in general. Well, there's always, and, and first of all, there's always this uh, battle kind of going back and forth between, you know, kind of TV news versus, you know, um, there are lots of, there have been lots of films about TV news and then TV mm-hmm. news gets back at like talking about how lurid films are and that sort of thing. So, so you definitely get, I do think that there's a little bit of a complicit complicity in the sense that, this is a film kind of about at least a fictionalized violence and fictionalized, you know, mm-hmm. but we're also like drawn in to the film largely because of the, the kind of scenes of violence and the, you know, this, this kind of lurid nature of it. And yet it's kind of wagging its finger at TV news, like airing this. And of course, one of these is fictionalized towards the other is in the world of the film real. So there is that difference, but I do think there's a little bit of a, we can have a conversation about like the way films kind of wag their finger at the audience for giving us the goods that they came to see. That's not necessarily the direction I want to go. Um, I think more interestingly, I like your point that, that Hall's character, his hollowness fits into this world of, of TV news because TV news on that level is this very kind of hollow world. And, you know, at the end of the film, you, you learn that I'm not giving away. I'm trying not to give away spoilers because mm-hmm. I think people should see this. Um, you basically learn that the, um, everything that's gone on in the, in the final third of the film or so has been, completely meaningless and without without any basis in fact ultimately you know it makes this kind of statement that the that the tv news that this lord if it bleeds it leads mentality is um, not informing the public at all and in fact is doing a disservice to the public which mm-hmm. we know this is what tv news does this is what i mean that is what happens when you treat your news organizations as profit centers like yeah. that that is one of the failures as someone who follows you know kind of political and social news quite well although i don't watch tv news because there's no reason to watch tv news you know, I can I can tell you that that the the failure of the of the modern news media because they go with what's flashy as opposed to what's important is yeah. one of the major problems in our society today. And the, the film is kind of putting that out there as as it's one of the sub themes of the film. No, it's, it's the same for uh, any sort of institution that is supposed to be for the public good. Uh, the news is supposed to be for the public good. It's supposed to be for the public by the public for the public good. Same with uh, same with healthcare. It's supposed to be for the public. It's supposed to be for their good. But when you put profit into it, it fucks everything up. So, I mean, it's it's exactly the same thing. Uh, you're going to see corruption 
at every fucking level uh, because profit is introduced into the system. It, it makes a good point on this film that he is selling stuff to the channel that is getting the lowest ratings in the market mm-hmm. in that area. And so they are desperate for anything, and he's giving them the best footage because this guy's running into fucking crime scenes. He he's breaking, basically breaking into people's homes to film um, fucking dead bodies. Yeah, and um, you know, moving moving bodies around for a better shot. Moving, yeah, uh, you know, manipulating crime scenes, all this sort of thing. And again, the fact that they focus on like local news coverage and and you know this kind of, I think, keeps it at a small enough scale so that you don't have to necessarily connect it to kind of larger social phenomena. But it's it's definitely there in the film, and it's definitely talking about those things. Certainly. In the restaurant scene, in the Mexican restaurant scene, you know, he talks about, you know, your average news guy spends 22 seconds on the stuff that actually matters effectively. You know, all of your local government coverage, all of your social coverage, all of your is 22 seconds of your average newscast. And, uh, you know, local crime is five minutes. Yeah. Um, And then the weather, of course, is another five minutes. They don't say that in the film. (laughs) But, you know, like. Um, that's what people turn their local news for is weather and crime, you know, yep. and, and everything else just kind of fills in the 15 seconds here or there. Um, and that is, again, kind of connected to, to a little bit of a bigger, bigger idea. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal is acting out of a desire for money. He is mm-hmm. acting out of a desire, like he's trying to build a business. He is the ultimate ur capitalist. Yeah. Um, he doesn't care about what it does to people. He doesn't care about, he cares about building his business and making money. Um, and you know, I get paid money to do things at my job. I don't, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not against money and I'm, and I'm not against, you know, capitalism to some degree. There is this logic of when we put our public institutions, when we put the things that um, actually matter to us as, as a society and we pit local news organizations against each other and they're fighting for advertiser dollars and they're fighting for ratings, they're going to go with what sells the most ratings and yeah. not, you know, they're going to go for the, for the profit margin and not for actually like informing people to that degree. You know, what, what Jake Gyllenhaal's character is doing is, is just acting out of that desire is he is just, he is just fulfilling that role. And you kind of get the sense that global capitalism is made for people like him, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, Bill Gates, the story of Bill Gates is essentially this story. Bill Gates robbed and stole and cheated his way into, uh, you know, every piece of software that Microsoft ever put out was essentially <laughs> stolen from someone else. They, they built their fortune, and then they consolidated the market, and then they own everything. Um, mm-hmm. And he uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal's character is the exact same thing throughout the movie because his observational skills, he essentially takes in everything that his competitors does, and then he ends up doing it. Although, of course, he doesn't do it to compete with his competitors because he just basically puts his competitors out of business by fucking fucking the dude's van up and sending Bill Paxton into a fucking car crash. <laughs> yep. I mean, there, there, is, there is such a... I mean, this is kind of where I say the film zigs when you think it's going to zag, you know, where, where uh, you kind of expect it to... You expect there to be some kind of rivalry between... Bill Paxton's character and Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Mm-hmm. You expect there to be this, you know, battle on on some degree between these two kind of rival companies, and then essentially Jake Gyllenhaal just cuts him completely out by killing him. I mean, you know, like like, and then that's that's yeah. the end of that. You think it's going to go one place, and it goes somewhere completely different. And yeah. uh, I think it's uh, uh, it's a it's a fascinating film, a fascinating performance. And uh, again, I wouldn't say this is my favorite of the year or anything like that, but um, I definitely think this is worth watching um, for. For the performances, for uh, for everything. I mean, I think it works on pretty much every level. 
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, you want to see what one of the great psychopaths in film history, look at Jake Gyllenhaal in this. I mean, he just, this is the performance of his career so far. I mean, before this, what the fuck has Jake Gyllenhaal really done that you can really think of? I, I mean, I, for me, for me, Zodiac is kind of the big, like, Jake that's, Gyllenhaal that's performance, about it. you know? That's about um, it, but uh, this is... This is way better than Zodiac. Like this yeah. is. <laughs> well, this is this is way. Uh, I like Zodiac a lot. I think yeah, Zodiac I do. Is, yeah, it's a phenomenal film. But uh, this is uh, definitely shorter than Zodiac. I'll give it that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would also uh, just just before we wrap up here, um, mm-hmm. uh, Dan Gilroy, uh, first time director. I mean, he's been around Hollywood for twenty something years, but uh, first time director. I think this is a phenomenally directed film. I think. Oh yeah. It's, um, whenever you're talking, whenever you're filming characters, filming things there is this risk of kind of making it seem too meta or this risk of it's very easy to kind of get artsy with it or very easy to, to distance yourself from it. I think that the, the kind of no nonsense directing style really works for uh, the film as a, as a whole. I think the, the, uh, you know, the kind of climactic final 10, 10 to 15 minutes Mm -hmm. are um, about as effectively done as I've ever seen a, a scene like that done. Um, uh, as an action director, I think that uh, Gilroy really like he shines more so than I, I expected him to. I think that there's a, some really interesting staging through some some sequences there. I also would like to uh, just put uh, one like shout out to the cinematography. Uh, the director of photography is a guy named Robert Ellswood, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, uh, shot a bunch of P.T. Anderson's early films. Um, ah, so. Okay. Uh, uh, and and you definitely get that like that the cinematography was kind of the first thing I noticed because there's this like lots of night shooting, lots of yeah. uh, kind of bright neons and um, you know kind of sparsely uh, colored shots. Um, and also not a movie that is um, gray and blue where where no, so no, many no. Uh, so many so many cinematographers would essentially take this story and turn it into the uh, this kind of <laughs> standard looking. Uh, Apparently every movie has to be in in shades of blue now, but uh, no, this is uh, uh, yeah, this yeah, doesn't no, look like that at all. Yeah, no, I don't. I like I mentioned earlier on that uh, it, it reminds me of a Michael Mann film in mm-hmm. a lot of ways how it's shot, but I I don't want to say that to uh, do a disservice to the cinematographer and the director in this film because uh, as much as like a lot of the stuff they do reminds me of Michael Mann. They do a great job on their own. Like they, it's really, it's its own thing. I mean, it does yeah. it does kind of have a little. When you say Michael Mann, I think oh, collateral. It kind of feels it has a little bit of that collateral vibe. But yeah. I honestly, I think this is a better film than Collateral, and I like oh, Collateral. It, a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a better film than Collateral. I'm um, I'm just thinking like overall, like Michael Mann, like how he shoots L.A. That that sort of that sort of vibe, like it reminded me of the, of that in this film. The way they do it here. They definitely distance themselves a bit from that, and they put their own stamp on it, and it works really well. I felt like nothing felt, uh, like you said, it, it didn't feel gim- gimmicky with people shooting film, like characters actually shooting film and shit. Like, it, it, they, he just let all the actors play out what they had to play out. They, It, it wasn't gimmicky. It felt very naturalistic. And, and in the end, it, it felt like a really well-crafted neo-noir film, essentially, mm-hmm. is what it is. Is and yeah. it, it works really fucking well. I think the biggest thing, of course, people are going to take from it is Jake Gyllenhaal's performance and Rene Russo's performance. But at the same time, don't overlook the fact that the film 
as a whole is well structured, well put together. Does not really have too many faults at all that I can see. Well, one of the, one of the issues that you run into with a film like this, and and Blue Ruin also kind of fits into the same you know mold. Uh, but particularly with uh, what's the title of the damn film? Nightcrawler. I want to call it Firecracker for some reason. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's late. I apologize. Um, one of the issues with the uh, Nightcrawler is that you know because the direction in the script and the, uh, the cinematography less so, but because the direction in the script feel very uh, straightforward, and they feel very uh, I don't want to say minimalist because minimalist is the wrong word, but but they feel mm-hmm. kind of uh, you know it is not flashy, and yeah. it's it's kind of like that old joke about like the Oscars, like uh, when you when you say best actor, you really should just replace the word best with most. Most actor, you know, uh, most cinematography, most yeah. directing. Um, that's sort of how uh, I think people see, you know, like, oh, well, as much as I love, you know, someone like P.T. Anderson, you know, he, he made his name because he does these big sweeping camera moves and these amazing, uh, you know, like three hour epic films and, you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, um, I love that. I'm not I'm not in any way criticizing that. But Dan Gilroy uh, here is not doing that sort of thing. He's mm-hmm. making a really effective uh, genre picture, a character study. And um, I think it would be remiss to to overlook the quality of the, the filmmaking just because it, it, it feels kind of like it doesn't it doesn't go out of its way to poke you in the eye with how brilliant it is. You know? Oh, yeah. This this is guy has been in the industry for years and he obviously knows like he's been on sets he knows how to make a tight film and he did that here like he just everything just does what it has to do it serves the plot it goes forward everything feels right there's no fat on this film it, ju- it just flows really well it, it, it runs at a good even though it's like two hours it, it goes quick it's a t- quick fucking it, it, it doesn't feel like a like a two-hour movie i mean obviously mm. i mean it, it feels like uh i mean i would have believed it was 90 minutes i mean mm-hmm. if, if you if i you know just kind of not if i just sat and watched it, I would have gone, oh yeah, that's like 90 minutes, maybe, you know, hour 45, but it's it's a full yep. two hours, and um, I, part of the reason that it does that is because it's, every scene does something, every shot does something, and um, it's changing, it's it's moving in a different direction often enough, and feels devoid of formula to a large degree, like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel like you're following a creaking plot, and you're, you're waiting, you know, you're not predicting where the movie's gonna go, and when you do, it's often kind of confounding your expectations to some degree. So it does feel uh, set a, set aside from from a strict formula, or a strict three act structure. Yeah, that it's, sort of thing. It, it, like it's definitely neo noir, but it does not fall into genre trappings. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, it's really good. Um, definitely re- recommend it. All right, so I think we can wrap up here. Uh, Daniel, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. I didn't even mention Doctor Who once on this podcast. Oh, you should shit. be proud of me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Well, you, I you want to mention Doctor Who several times now, and I can edit it yeah. back into the yeah, into you the can, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's just like Tom Baker and the Androids of Terror. I know. Um, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that reminds me of this William Hartnell episode from 1967. You know, uh, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the Smugglers uh, doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't exist anymore, so we can't actually watch it. But uh, you know, that one kind of drags. Unlike uh, no, okay, so um, yeah. So uh, in case you can't tell, I uh, I'm a big Doctor Who nerd these days, and uh, I do a podcast with my wife, uh, which is all about Doctor Who classic and new series. Uh, we are uh, right. We are just started doing the. Uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan, a classic Who fan, we just started doing the Key to Time series, um, which is season 16 of uh, classic Doctor Who. <laughs> And uh, Romana One and all that sort of great stuff. So um, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you should check me out 
um, especially if you like us. Uh, if you if you want to listen to a uh, a married couple goof off and talk about something we love um, and yep. uh, sexism, we do a lot of that. We talk a lot about sexism. So, um, yeah. Yeah, in your uh, last episode about uh, scientists versus uh, oligarchy, oligarchy, the science versus excellent. oligarchy. Yes. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't get any comments on that episode. I got no like emails or anything. So uh, I, I, I am reluctant to make comments because every time I do, they never get replies, and you're on your podcast, so I, I kind of get disenchanted. Oh well, I'll I'll uh, I'll try to correct that in the future. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, you can check that out at oispaceman.libsyn.com if you are so inclined. And I will work harder to respond to comments. How does that sound? Definitely. Awesome. And you can check the rest of our stuff out when you listen to the trailer at the end. Uh, Don't know what I'm going to do for end music yet, unless you have some sort of uh, weird inclination, Daniel. Uh, I'll think of something later, but... uh... I, I was trying to think of this, and I couldn't think of anything obvious. I, I keep thinking there's some, like, classic rock song from the 70s that's... Uh, you know, like like some uh, Eddie Money song or something that's uh, that's perfect for it. Um, but I, I can't oh, I know, I it. know. Why not uh, Bad Finger, Baby Blue? Why not? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, there we go. All right, send your questions and comments. Of course, people, we we definitely uh, encourage that. We're going to be doing our slasher month here in August pretty soon. So if there's any last minute requests for slasher movies please send them in because paul and i are finalizing the list here pretty soon that we're going to subjugate daniel to also uh is next- paul still on this podcast i haven't heard his voice in a while yeah so, uh, he's he's been having troubles with connecting and work and stuff so uh we'll eventually get him back also next week july 20th will be my contribution to the summer film school on slaughter film uh anyone wants to check that out i'll link it in the in the down there it's my uh discussion about the uh thing documentary from uh john carpenter's thing uh dvd if you're interested in checking that out so uh that should be fun and uh yeah guys thank you very much for listening uh thank you very much daniel for joining me and we will talk to you guys again soon bye-bye cheers
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>